while watching some of those children sing, uh, some of them were not born when Sarah and I and the girls got here. Man, amazing. Love to, love to see that. It's a great, uh, great morning already. Join me in your Bibles, John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, as we are picking up where we left off uh, two weeks ago, we are in verses 13 through 15. John 14, verses 13 through 15. It's a short passage, three verses. Yet this is a profound passage about prayer. Prayer being that gospel privilege we have been given as believers. The privilege, I'm going to quote the title of a recent book, The Privilege to Pierce Heaven with Our Words. The privilege to approach our sovereign Savior's throne of grace, not in cowering fear, but with a bold confidence. Bold because now we are children of God. We've been clothed with Christ's righteousness through faith. Bold because we know that our Savior will receive us and hear us. Prayer is the freedom to cast all our cares and all our anxieties and all our concerns upon God. Why? Because he cares for us. Start in verse 13. Let me read the passage. Whatever you ask, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now remember where we are in Christ's life, the purpose of this promise. Jesus is preparing his apostles for life without him. And Jesus has been clear, death is coming. His cross is only hours away. The apostles will not always have Jesus by their side. So this is late Thursday evening. We're entering into the early morning of Friday. Jesus knows what will soon transpire. One of his apostles will betray him with a kiss, betray him into the hands of the religious leaders, He will be condemned as a blasphemer by Caiaphas, the high priest of the land. He will be handed over to Pilate, who will sentence him to death. Drop down to verse 31. Notice how the chapter ends. Verse 31, Jesus says, get up. Get up from the table. We're leaving this upper room. Get up. Let us go from here. Luke 22 puts it this way, we're going to head towards Gethsemane where the power of darkness will have its way. That's only a few hours away. So back to verse one, this is why the apostles are frightened. Jesus uses the word troubled, agitated, stirred. Where? Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. They're distressed at the deepest recesses of their being. They're about to lose their master in the worst possible way imaginable. Their Lord, their God will soon no longer be by their side. He's always been there for the last three years, always been with them physically. 
So they are fearful for what that means for him. They're fearful for what it means for them. They're frightened. Frightened by the call they have been given. The call to carry on Christ's gospel work after he leaves. How are they going to do that? How, given their own weakness, frailties, we saw that's how chapter 13 ended. Jesus says uh, to Peter, you are going to deny me. You're frail and you're weak. How are they going to remain faithful to Jesus without Jesus next to them? Without Jesus teaching them and guarding them and protecting them? Their heart is troubled. Which is why Jesus devotes every word of chapter 14 to easing his apostles' fears, to calming his apostles' hearts. He does this by giving them, and us as well, giving us 12 heart-calming promises that we can cling to as the troubles of our world surround us. This fear and uncertainty and worry and sorrow and heartache well up inside of us. That's what chapter 14 is all about. Verse one again, it's how we are not to let our heart be troubled. Repeated in verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled. So we've looked at the first three promises Christ gives here. We've seen in verses one through seven, Jesus' promise of a heavenly home. Verse two, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. They're for you. My Father will welcome you into his house. We've seen Jesus' promise of our eternal security based on his unity with the Father. It's in verses eight through 12. Look at verse 11. Believe me, believe my promise, the security, Why? Because I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. Last time, we looked at verse 12. We saw Jesus' third promise. We can be expectant. Why? Because he's using us to carry out his gospel work. There's the promise. He's using us to carry out his gospel work. Verse 12, he who believes in me, the works, in this case, the physical miracles, that I do, he will do also. That's specific for the apostles. They continue Jesus' miracles as the church is being formed. But that wasn't the highlight of this promise. The most stunning part of Jesus' promise is in the second half of the verse. Read it. Second half, and greater works. Jesus, how is this possible? Greater works? A greater miracle? Greater works than these he will do. This is for us. Christ is going to use us to carry out the greater work of conversion, of regeneration, of salvation, the indwelling and sealing of the sinner by the Holy Spirit. He uses us. That's the promise. He'll use us for this greater work as we proclaim his gospel. The Lord will use us to raise the spiritually dead to newness of life in Christ. 
So the application is though trouble surrounds us and sin will deepen within this world, we cannot cower in fear. No, we must remember the greater work Christ has called us to be a part of. Be vocal, be bold, active for his gospel. So how do we calm our hearts in a world of sin and chaos? We put our hope in our heavenly home. We find our security in a glorious savior And we devote ourselves to the greater work, the gospel work of our Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Brings us now to the fourth heart calming promise Jesus gives in verses 13 through 15. Here's promise number four. Let's focus here this morning. Promise number four. In a world filled with troubles and fears, sorrows and heartaches, we must be prayerful. Be prayerful. Prayerful, why? Because we have access to heaven's throne room of grace. Be prayerful. We have access to heaven's throne room of grace. Again, read the passage. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do not be troubled. Can turn to the Lord in prayer. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do not be troubled. Cast your cares upon the Lord. And then if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Reminds me of the hymn. I'm not gonna sing it, by the way. (laughs) Oh, what peace we forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's relating this promise to verse one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And notice how essential prayer is to Jesus's final farewell to his apostles. This is one of the focuses, the last few hours of Jesus's life. Drop down to chapter 15, verse seven. 15, verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, what's the call? Ask Pray, plead, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do not stay quiet with your Lord. Do not stay quiet about the gospel. Do not stay quiet by not coming to him in prayer. Ask, seek, knock. Look at verse 16 of chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that, what's the point here? So that whatever you ask, pray of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We've been chosen to pray, appointed to pray. Move into chapter 16. Same call, continues verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. You've been given access to heaven's throne room of grace. You will be heard, you will be welcomed. 
Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Not only are our hearts calmed through prayer, but we're made joyful through prayer. And I love verse 27. Why? Why? For the Father himself loves you. That's why. He is not uninterested in our needs. He is not aloof to our pain. We pray because the Father loves us. And then you move into chapter 17, and what you see here is that Jesus moves from the promise of prayer to his followers to now actually praying for himself. He puts prayer into practice. Verse 1. Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. This is a request, a prayer. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Father, verse five, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Even Christ approaches the father's throne himself. And then Jesus moves into interceding for us, praying for us. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, holy father, keep them in your name. That's what I'm asking, pleading for. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, guarding, protecting, sanctifying, I guarded them, verse 13, but now I come to you, I approach your throne. Why? Because I'm leaving them. And thus I'm praying for them. And my prayer is, verse 15, keep them from the evil one. That's not only for the apostles, by the way. Look at verse 20. And Jesus extends this prayer to all believers. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. I'm not just asking for my apostles. No, I'm praying for those also who believe in me through their word. Christ was and is also praying for us. And then as you bring the synoptics into play, you see that Jesus's prayer then turns very heavy as he enters the garden, falls to the ground, pleads with such earnestness that drops of blood collect on his face. Even Christ, even Christ, when his heart became troubled, he turned to his father in prayer. How much more must we? Prayer is a refuge a refuge for the believer that where the weak can cling to the rock of our salvation. Prayer's a bridge that connects our frailties and our fears to the Lord's unlimited resources. Prayer's a reminder of God's imminence and care that he, the creator, transcendent one, he hears us, he loves us, he comforts us, he works. 
As you trace this through this final farewell, you see that prayer is one of those threads that hold this final goodbye together between Jesus and his apostles. Back to chapter 14. What does Jesus do here? He's giving a grid, a grid through which we can pray. He's giving us a picture of what heart-calming prayer looks like as the chaos of the world builds and the sinfulness of the day deepens. And specifically, there are three elements Jesus highlights here, three elements of heart-calming prayer. Certainly a call to prayer for us. Let's begin with the first. The first, number one, heart-calming prayer rests on the sovereignty of God. Heart-calming prayer rests on the sovereignty of God. This is why Jesus begins with the word whatever, whatever you ask. This is as broad as you can get, general. Well, then look at verse 14. It's followed up with the word anything. Whatever you ask, and then Jesus says, ask me anything. Again, follow this through. Chapter 15, verse 7, ask whatever you wish. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 23, if you ask the Father for anything. So Jesus here is calling for big prayers. Anything prayers, whatever prayers. What undergirds this the very reason we can turn to the Lord when our hearts are troubled is because we know that he has the ability and the sovereignty and the love and the care to supply all our needs. Again, general, all our needs according to his riches. We turn to our God in prayer because our God is sovereign. He's the king, he's the ruler. Nothing is outside of his power and wisdom. Everything and whatever fall within his sovereign control. We pray because God's sovereignty is meticulous. It extends to every detail of life. There are no rogue atoms. Proverbs 16:33, "The law is cast. The dice are rolled. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Meticulous, detailed sovereignty. We pray because God's sovereignty is universal. It extends to every part of his creation. Listen to Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. So whether we are, we are on land or sea, on earth or in heaven, nothing exists outside a sustaining and controlling hand. We also pray because the Lord's sovereignty is personal. It's personal. 
Again, why do we come in prayer? For he loves us. This is personal. Think of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though my heart is troubled, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's personal sovereignty. It's loving care. So Jesus here is freeing us. He is freeing us to pray. Pray for the intricate details of life, no matter how small. Pray for every issue of life, no matter how large. Cast your personal needs before him. Those physical, those might be physical needs. They also might be spiritual needs. In fact, I think we can connect Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Ask me anything. Connect that back to verse 12. And the greater works, we come to the Lord with spiritual requests. This is how Paul prayed, Colossians chapter one, that the hearts would be enlightened. He's praying for the salvation of souls. Pray physically, yes. Pray spiritually, Jesus' assurance is this. No request is too big and no request is too small for our Lord. Whatever the concern you might have, bring that before your caring God. Anything that might be troubling your heart, lay that before the sovereign throne. J.C. Ryle has written this. How is it? that many true Christians go on halting and mourning on the way to heaven and enjoy so little peace and show so little strength in Christ's service? How is it that their hearts are so often troubled? That's the question. The answer is simple and plain. They have not because they have not asked. They have little because they ask little. We are not straightened in our Lord, but in ourselves. He that does much for Christ and leaves his mark in the world will always prove to be one who prays much. They bring the whatevers and the anythings before the Lord. This is where Christ begins. He's freeing us now. He's freeing us to pray. Heart calming prayer rests on the sovereignty of God. Now notice though, though the Lord is limitless in his sovereign control, and though Christ is calling us to bring every care before him, there is a stipulation. There's a stipulation Jesus places on our prayers. This is not carte blanche guarantee. You'll get everything you ask for. This is no name it and claim it promise. God does not bind himself to everything we ask. Continue the verse. Whatever you ask, there's the general, but now here's the specific. Whatever you ask in my name, that's the stipulation, in my name. That, only that will I do. Verse 14 repeated, if you ask me, 
anything general, now specific, in my name, I will do it and only it. Here's now the second element of heart-calming prayer. Heart-calming prayer seeks the will of God. Seeks the will of God. In my name, three words that is filled with so much meaning. This is not tacking that on at the end of the prayer. In Jesus' name. That's not the point. There's meaning behind this. In fact, every time... Throughout John 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus talks about prayer, he talks about this phrase, in my name. So how are we to understand this phrase? Two ways, two ways. First of all, whatever you ask in my name means that saving faith in Christ is necessary before we can come to God in prayer. Saving faith is necessary. We come to the throne in Christ's name. That means we've been humbled by God's grace. We understand God's majesty. We know that we cannot enter the throne room of God based upon our own name, our own character, our merits, our goodness. We need someone else. And Jesus is speaking this on his way to the cross. In my name indicates that prayer is a cross-purchase privilege. Prayer is that privilege, a gospel privilege purchased by Christ. That's why we can come before the Father. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Look at verse six. This is just simply another way of stating that I am the only way to the Father. That is true in salvation. That is true in prayer. We can only come before God's throne if through faith we are united to his name, his person, his righteousness. Christ purchased this privilege and he will purchase this in a matter of hours. Second, second way to understand the phrase in my name. This also carries with it the idea of according to my character. According to my character or in harmony with my will. So think about it this way. These are prayers offered as if Christ was praying them. Prayers in union with Christ's purposes, in agreement with his plans for his sake, for his glory, his honor, his renown. So in the scriptures, someone's name wasn't so much a distinguishing title, though that was part of it. Someone's name was a reference to a person's reputation, their honor, their character, and thus we must pray in Christ's name according to his honor, his reputation. That must be our overarching desire that he would be known, his will would be done. I think this is why John in his letter 
And no doubt, thinking back to this promise, there's so many similarities. It's in 1 John chapter 5. He writes this. This is the confidence which we have before him. Because we come to the Father clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We have a confidence. We have a confidence of boldness. Knowing what? Knowing that if we ask anything, you can hear Jesus' words. If we ask anything, if we believe his sovereignty, now notice, according to his will, we seek his will, we're satisfied with his will, not ours. Based upon all of that, we are confident he hears us, he answers us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we asked based upon Christ's reputation, we know that we have the requests. We have them. They're as good as done. We have them, which we have asked from him. Do not let your heart be troubled because God calls us to his throne and he will always answer always answer those prayers according to his will. He makes no mistakes in answering prayers. No mistakes. If he has not answered your prayer with a yes now, it's not according to his will. And we give praise to the Lord for that. He makes no mistakes. Now compare Jesus' teaching on prayer here, John 14, with what he taught his apostles earlier in his ministry in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, Jesus taught how to pray. He gave a form of prayer. He taught them to move from praise, hallowed be your name. Move from praise to then intercession. Give us this day our daily bread to confession. Forgive us our debts. That was a form of prayer. But here in John 14, Jesus does not give a form of prayer. Instead, he emphasizes the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer. This is the heart that does not seek to exalt our own reputation. No, we want to further the renown of our Lord. That's the heart of prayer. This is a heart not interested in indulging our own selfish desires. No, we're concerned to further Christ's purposes. This is a heart not content in our own will to be done, but satisfied with the will of our Savior. This is heart-calming prayer. Prayer is not fighting against God. It's not fighting against him. It's not trying to convince him to do something. It's not trying to manipulate God. Heart-calming prayer is conforming our will our concerns, our requests to the name of Jesus, the interests of Christ. One commentator wrote this, to pray in Jesus' name is like signing his name to our prayers. Is that how we pray? Jesus signs off on them. Now, there's a contrast. There's a contrast to this kind of in Christ's name prayer. That contrast is in James chapter four. Here it is. 
You ask, you pray, you plead, you ask and do not receive. This is the exact opposite now of what Jesus promises in John 14. So prayers have been offered. They have not been answered in the affirmative. So why is the question in this case, why? Here's why, because you ask with wrong motives. That's one reason you ask with wrong motives. You're seeking your own will. You're not praying in Jesus' name. So that you may spend it, the answered prayer, so that you might spend that on your own pleasures, your own lusts, your own selfish desires. That's the contrast. From seeking God's will, contrasted here with satisfying our own pleasures. And so we have to ask the question, what describes our prayer life? How do we pray? What heart, what heart do we bring before God in our prayers? Are we satisfied with Christ's desires? Are we willing in prayer to conform our will to his will? Are we satisfied with our Savior's answers? Or do we demand that our will be done? Do we try to manipulate? Are we fueled in prayer by our own wants? Again, the contrast, how do we pray? Do we pray in Jesus' name? Or do we pray so that we may spend it on our own pleasures? It's the heart of prayer. Now notice though, and this is stunning, who Jesus says will answer these prayers. Who's gonna answer these prayers? Verse 13, we pray in Jesus's name, whatever you ask in my name, that will, watch, I do. It's repeated at the end of verse 14, I will do it. That's astounding. It's an amazing claim that Jesus makes. Jesus is claiming for himself here attributes that belong to God alone. You pray, I'll answer. I will do it. Christ is claiming authority and sovereignty. He's also claiming omniscience, all knowledge. Omnipresence, that he'll be in every place at every time. He's going to hear every prayer. He will hear every prayer of every one of his followers. He's claiming the authority to answer that. It's what only God can do. Second, Jesus is also placing himself where only God belongs claiming to do what only God can do and now placing himself where only God belongs. Again, compare if you ask me anything to what Jesus taught in Matthew 6, our father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you can pray directly to me. You can pray to me. He's placing himself where only God belongs. 
Why can Jesus claim this kind of prayer hearing status, this power, this knowledge? Why can Jesus direct prayers to himself? Look back at verse 9. It's because of what he said there. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father and Son are so equal in nature and in purpose. They are so united that when you pray to the Son, you are indeed praying to the Father. They're not at odds with one another. You don't try to pray to the Father and if you don't get your prayer answered, now we're gonna go to the Son. They're so united to go to the Father is to go to the Son and vice versa. And you can connect this even to verse 12. Why can we pray to the Son? It's because where the Son is, at the end of verse 12, he says, because I go to the Father. We're praying to the ascended Christ. We're offering prayers to the one who sits at the Father's right hand of glory. And they're always united in purpose and will. Notice also here, Jesus says, I will answer, I will work. Notice the criteria that Jesus will use for answering prayer. It's at the end of verse 13. He will answer in the affirmative so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And it's just astounding When we pray in Jesus' name, it is equivalent to praying to the glory of the Father. Again, that's how united the Son and the Father are. And thus, Jesus will only grant our requests if those requests will bring his Father glory. And that's a good thing, it's a great thing. Because the Father's glory is always what is best for us. So again, instead of trying to fight against God, manipulate God, be satisfied in his will, his answers, always does what is best for his glory and what is best for his people. So the apostles here thought they were losing Jesus. For three years, they have talked to Jesus daily. They've made requests of him. They've cast their cares upon him. And they think all of that is ending soon. They think that Jesus is going away would end their intimacy with him and his care of them. But Jesus says, you're wrong. Do not let your heart be troubled. Because far from ending Christ's intimacy with his people, Christ's departure actually expands his intimacy with his people. Because while on earth, Jesus could only hear the concerns of a few. But now that he sits at his father's right hand, he hears the prayers from every one of his followers around this world. It's no wonder that Jesus Jesus will say in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your what? It's to your advantage. It's for your benefits that I go away. 
So heart-calming prayer first rests on the sovereignty of God. Second, it seeks the will of God. It conforms our request to the glory of the Father in the name of the Son. But there's a third element that Jesus adds here to heart-calming prayer. Number three, heart-calming prayer obeys the commands of God. Heart-calming prayer obeys the commands of God. That is to say, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we must come with repentant, confessed, and obedient hearts. That's the connection with verse 15. Here's the conclusion to heart-calming prayer, the transition into what he will say next. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Pray to me. Verses 13 and 14 now moves to love me. And love me now moves to obey me. This is now the atmosphere, the life of heart-calming prayer. It is true, we approach the Father in the name of the Son based upon Christ's righteousness, and that is true. We must be united to Christ through faith. But we must also approach the Father as someone who is living according to the righteousness of the Son. This is obedience and repentance. Offering prayers in Jesus' name necessitates loving obedience to Jesus' commands. This is not a new requirement. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. The Lord will not hear, the Lord will not answer the prayers of the unrepentant. That's a theme. You will not hear the prayers of those who harbor sin within their hearts. That's why you see so many prayers of confession in the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 66. If I regard wickedness in my heart, if I refuse to turn from my sin, and yet I offer prayers, I do not confess, I do not turn, but I still offer prayers to the Lord. No, the Lord will not hear those prayers. That's clear. It's repeated in Isaiah, Isaiah 1. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are covered with blood. You're harboring sin in your heart. I do not hear those prayers. Wash yourselves is the call. Make yourselves clean. Seek the Lord in confession. That's Psalm 51. It's the prayer of confession. Confess your sins, turn, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, put off evil, repent, 
And then put on obedience, learn to do good. It's repeated in Isaiah 59 as well. In fact, this was such a well-known prayer principle, well-known, that the crowd in Jesus' day knew it very well, very well. We saw it back in John chapter 9. The blind man who's healed, he says, we know that God does not hear sinners. We know that. It's based in the Psalms. It's based in Isaiah. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing, obedient, and does his will, he hears him. This is not perfection. It's not a perfect life. It's an obedient life. It's a confessing life, a repentant life. And I think, at least in part, I think that Jesus has one command in mind, at least one. He used commands, plural, so he has at least one in mind. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think one of those is back in chapter 13. Turn there, chapter 13, where he uses the word commandment. In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Do you want a hearing before the Lord? A new commandment I give to you that you, uh, that you love one another. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We cannot approach the throne of grace rightly. We cannot pray in Jesus' name unless we are actively loving and forgiving and uniting with God's people at least one of the commandments. And so connect that, verse 15, if you love me, with chapter 13, love one another. If we love Christ, who will we love? We will love followers of Christ. If you love me, obey my commands. So these are the elements of heart-calming prayer. It rests on the sovereignty of God. It seeks the will of God. And it obeys the commands of God. And when we approach the throne of grace in this way, fear will be replaced with faith. And our troubled hearts will be calmed. Why? Because we will be reminded of God's promise that he rules over every circumstance we might face. And we will be reminded of God's love that our access to the Father has been purchased by the Son. And we will be reminded of our Savior's intimacy that he hears every Christ-honoring prayer we offer him. And we will be reminded of our Lord's wisdom that he will answer our prayers only when it will bring the Father glory and be for our good. And we will be reminded of our Lord's mercy and grace and care for us that whatever the concern, 
And whatever the trouble, we can cast all our anxiety on him. Why? For he cares for us. Do not let your heart be troubled. Rather, be prayerful. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 55, be prayerful because we have access to heaven's throne room of grace. Father, we are thankful for this privilege and may we not take it lightly. May we pray to you often and may we be humble. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that we have relied upon ourselves for far too long. We have quickly turned to others to bring calmness of heart, not to you. We confess that you are the sovereign, caring, loving savior of our souls. May we come to you often with our requests, casting our cares upon you. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.